Your passport allows you to fix what you can, to love, to refuse to take part in ugliness. But meanwhile, you are delighted that this is such a varied, wonderful, colorful place. As a traveler, you're not here to judge, but to experience. You begin to feel a new affection for the lifeforms here. You no longer feel threatened that some may be greater or lesser than you. It's only important that you've been given this marvelous opportunity to enjoy this trip, to learn from it, and in my case, write about it. Perhaps you know where I'm leading with this. On a trip like this, and it is a trip, its loveliness is not in the sameness of people and things, but in their incredible variety. Those were the words of Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry, and this is The Red Pen. Welcome back to The Red Pen, where we cut up fiction to see what it's made of. I am your main host this week. My name is Amanda Jean-Luc Picard. (laughs) (laughs) Amanda Jean-Luc Picard. (laughs) I'm Austin Kirk Chant. (laughs) Austin Tiberius Chant. Austin Tiberius Chant. I like that. I do too. Is that your official middle name now? That's my official. That's Austin's official middle name. Oh my gosh. Put Write that down. Stamp it. Get it to a notary. So in case you couldn't tell, this episode is all about Star Trek, but specifically it's about the Star Trek captains that were created under Gene Roddenberry, Jean-Luc Picard from Star Trek to the Next Generation, and James T. Kirk from the original series. How do I even want yeah. to... Exp- yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I felt like I needed to interject something there, but I waited too long. You did. It's fine. I appreciate you. One of the things that I'm going to be talking about in this episode is basically the whole Kirk versus Picard myth and how it's really wrong-footed or wrong-headed. No matter what end of you it is, it's wrong. (laughs) Whichever end of you is really invested in this argument needs to sit down. (laughs) Um, Because it's basically irrelevant, and also there are two sides of the same Star Trek coin, and also... Really importantly here, like there would be no Picard without Kirk. He's in constant conversation with James Kirk. So by saying, um, oh, obviously Picard, Picard, your ship name, <laughs> by saying that Picard is like the OG captain and, and better than Kirk is, I mean, that can be your opinion, but also you're failing to take into account that Picard was shaped because of Kirk. It's also Kirk too at the same I like time. It, I like the aggression of this thesis for this week. <laughs> It's very aggressive because <laughs> like, I have a lot of aggressive off. feelings. Well, let's start, start off with who's wrong and why. <laughs> and we will now proceed to uh, dissect their, the remains of the people who were wrong. <laughs> and uh, yeah, really get in there and make them feel bad about themselves. <laughs> I'm trying. That's As my they whole deserve goal. They do. For being they do wrong. deserve. People who are wrong about Star Trek deserve so many things in this life and none of them good. <laughs> um, <laughs> So one of the reasons I picked Kirk and Picard, be, not least because they are they are my two favorite captains in the Star Trek oeuvre, but also because, as I said, they're the only two who were created by Gene Roddenberry in some form because he died during the production of, um, I think, the third season of Next Gen. So he wasn't around for Deep Space or Voyager or the one we won't talk about, Enterprise, or even obviously Disco um, Discovery, which is the one that's on now. That's why I'm talking about them, because they are... The ones who are emblematic the most as part of what we're talking about in terms of their construction, we're going to be looking at how they both embody Trek's ethos over the years and how that ethos changed. So that's what you're in for this week. I hope you all like Star Trek. <laughs> this is this is the most academic I think either of us has been on this podcast so far. Your notes document for this episode is by far the longest <laughs> notes section of anything we've done. And includes like the longest work cited list with a whole bunch of like academic papers on it. Yeah, I bought uh, I paid Amanda money. went in. I went in hard because I 
I'm not going to pretend that I am a Trek scholar. Um, I'm just an enthusiast who has loved this franchise since I was a, a wee bab. But I also know that if I'm going to have a, an opinion like y'all are wrong when you talk about which captain is best, when you pit them against each other, these two particularly, like I better have some shit in my backpack to make that check out because otherwise yeah. Trek fans are notoriously um, pedantic and... <laughs> <laughs> I'm proving that stereotype right now. <laughs> is ready to throw down with the best of I'll them. I'll fight him. I'll fight him. I bring to the table the fact that I have seen a few episodes of Star Trek and a movie of Star Trek, and that at approximately the age of 19 or 20, got very suddenly invested in Kirk Spock and bought what was pitched to me by the internet as like the gayest of the extended universe novels for Star Trek, uh, The Entropy Effect by Vonda McInter. Yes, infamous. Uh, and then I had a writing workshop with her one time, which was wild. That's so uh, anyway, cool. Anyway, it's a delightful campy book and it is pretty gay. N- not really particularly gayer than... The, just the canon of the show is intentionally in some ways well that's uh, i take that back because there were queer writers on star trek who tried to make it gay or at least people who were queer allies who tried to make it gay we'll get into that we will it's not the point of this episode but in my deconstruction of like gene roddenberry <laughs> we'll get there <laughs> i'm gonna take you to gene roddenberry church aka Gurch? I think Gurch. Okay. Gurch. For those of you who may not be big Star Trek fans, what I'm going to break down here is the central conceit of the series and its creator and talk about how these two characters are, like I said, emblematic of it. So we're going to start by talking about... Do you want to talk about Gene Roddenberry first? Sure. Yeah, the man himself. The man himself. So Gene Roddenberry was a self-proclaimed humanist. He started out, uh, he was in the Air Force and he was a beat cop in LA. And interestingly, while he was a beat cop, he was writing scripts and writing scripts for television in the 50s, I assume, (laughs) which is like the funniest side job. I think for a cop. Yeah, I'm a cop, but I also write scripts or TV. Some other in- interesting things of note, he was raised Southern Baptist. And my note, my note here says was kind of an asshole. <laughs> which I hadn't Kind realized. of? Based on your notes for this episode, <laughs> that's mild. Yeah, I went, I'm gentle. So I only had like the bullet point outline of Gene Roddenberry and his life and his contributions and what I thought was his ethos. Um, When I started doing more research on him and sort of the myths surrounding him, I started to realize that maybe this dude was more complex than I had thought and that in turn made me re-examine what I thought of the Star Trek ethos. So I'll give you some examples. Um, He tried to trick Leonard Nimoy into joining the animated series. (laughs) Explain this Um, to me. When he was working on the animated series, he was trying not to hire George Takei and um, Nichelle Nichols um, to save money, is what the Wikipedia says. He didn't tell Leonard Nimoy that, and instead, quote, in an effort to get him to sign on, told him that he was the only member of the main cast not returning. After Nimoy discovered the deception, he demanded Takei and Nichols pay Su- play Sulu and Uhura. Good lord. <laughs> anyway, there was like a couple of instances where he was a big douchebag. Apparently, in his later life, became just n- kind of not fun to be around. He also so, and this is a stickler for me as a person who cares a lot about Star Trek and is queer. He had been promising fans during the con circuit some sort of queer representation. And then he was talking to the executive producer, Rick Berman, as well as his allegedly homophobic and very shitty lawyer who told him that they couldn't do that. So when David uh, Gerald wrote a, a script that was essentially an AIDS metaphor in the 80s for TNG. Good old David Gerald. Good old David. He had this entire metaphor and he was actually going to bookend it with a card that had people encouraged to donate blood and stuff. You know, even after Gene's promise and even after he had signed off on Gerald writing this script that was essentially an extended AIDS metaphor, he was like, nope, can't do it. Won't do it. Take the queers out. (laughs) And the episode wasn't actually filmed um, and there were no canonical on-screen gays until the fucking Star Trek reboot. Three movies in (laughs) with Beyond. Yep. (laughs) And then now we've got, there's a canonically uh, queer couple on Discovery, Stamets, and Culber, which is great. But that was, again, 2017. So the the distance between, oh, we're going to have canonical gaze on Star Trek versus when it actually happened is egregious. And one of of many flaws in the franchise, but that one's a big one. And then post-Trek, Roddenberry went off to make a sexploitation movie. So he was like... (laughs) complex (laughs) he was complex 
he had some good ideas, right? And that is, I was talking about this with Austin in our pre-prep and I was saying, look, the fact that, that the creator of Star Trek and some of the ideals behind Star Trek and its prime directive and its core ideals, because some of those are flawed or outdated does not mean that they weren't meaningful and progressive at the time. So we have to sort of acknowledge what was short-sighted or bad about them and also acknowledge the good that they did. So we're going to focus on that this episode. It's not going to be a whole teardown of why the prime directive is actually like super <laughs> fucked up. <and laughs> they broke it all the time because they were mass- massive colonialists, despite saying they weren't. Anyway. Because this is our positive show where we talk about things we love. Don't destroy things we love from the inside out. My final note on Roddenberry until I move forward into talking about Star Trek in terms of its its core beliefs is, um. so one of the things that Star Trek was and is lauded for is its diversity uh, among the cast and the fact that you got to see someone like Lieutenant O'Hara on the bridge as a black woman and a woman in a time when that just was seemingly unfeasible. The fact that Star Trek had one of the first, not the first, but one of the first fictional interracial kisses on television. The fact that at certain points, T- uh, TNG, there were background characters wandering around in um, gender neutral uniforms. You had a lot of dude coded characters wearing mini skirts, which was actually really cool. And I wish they had kept that through Star Trek's run, but they didn't. One of the big narratives in sort of Star Trek history is that NBC was not cool with diversity because they made Roddenberry rework his initial pilot because it was too cerebral and it had a female first officer and they just thought like, well, no one's going to buy that. But actually, according to memos, internal memos that have been released since, NBC actually pushed for more women and more people of color. And if you look at the pilot, uh, Roddenberry's cast was all white. Hmm. Oh, and then the episode I mentioned, Plato's Stepchildren, which is that infamous interracial Kirk Uhura kiss, was in season three, which was a season Roddenberry was only producer in name only of. And the people who were behind that kiss making it to air were actually like the people on the ground, like Shatner, who kept fucking up every other take so that they had <laughs> to use the kiss. So there are other people in the, the Star Trek cast and crew who should be given some props for its diversity. People like Nichelle, who actually took the role of Uhura, despite the fact that she was essentially consigned to being on the bridge in a miniskirt, like doing not a lot. Mm-hmm. And producer Lucio Ball, who sold uh, Desilu Studios to Paramount to save essentially a flagging show and believed in Star Trek from the beginning. So there are people that need to be given their due that haven't been, I don't think, as much because it's all under the title card of Roddenberry. Like Roddenberry created this, Roddenberry did this, Roddenberry pushed for diverse- diversity. Roddenberry was a humanist with this vision when the reality was that he was just a complex dude who had some good ideas, but also some bad ones. Yeah. Fucking got through that. Tear him down. Get him. I got through that and it was hard. I feel bad. Uh (laughs) Don't feel guilt. It's okay. So Austin, I figured this is a good time to ask you. You can look at my notes if you want to cheat. But what do you think the the primary ethos of star trek is right like what do you think it's it's ideals are what is it i didn't expect a pop quiz yeah it's time ideals of star trek diversity good mm-hmm. um we should go to space and not be shitbags there <laughs> like we were on earth in the past time now that we're in space we've fixed all those problems and we're good people now, and we just go around in space with our mostly diverse crew and uh, learn about new stuff and interact with people in a good way that we haven't figured out yet back on good old 20th century Earth. <laughs> you know, for, for someone who d- did not know that was coming and wasn't looking at my notes, I applaud you. That was pretty good. <laughs> well, I did look at your notes, but... Not really right now. You know, like right before the show started. <laughs> my notes are how many pages long so good that's job. true one of my main powers in life that has gotten me through like school and work and everything else is the ability to immediately memorize <laughs> large chunks of text and numbers so <laughs> that's true we're similar if you're not a fan of star trek and even if you are like guess what i gotta explain some stuff about its ethos i'm tired of saying that word in this this construction of space capitalism is more or less a thing of the past poverty starvation and tolerance those are all things of the past uh humankind it did sound like you said and tolerance (laughs) (laughs) tolerance finally at an end fucking finally killed it listen tolerance bad acceptance good so maybe maybe Mm. 
Mm. See, I gotcha. There was a deeper meaning. I gotcha with that one. My smarts. Finally, we've stopped tolerating people. (laughs) In the future, all we can hope for is to not tolerate people. Within Star Trek, it's essentially a show about how these more evolved, kinder beings have discovered that there is life. They've had first contact with the Vulcans. They have achieved space flight. They have matured as a species in this mature, peaceful permutation of humanity they have set out in their their fancy starships to go boldly explore new worlds but they have a very anti-interventionist directive the prime directive that keeps them presumably from interacting (laughs) with still developing planets especially like planets who they would consider inferior or not yet evolved like they're specifically supposed to just like take note of it and move on but because it's star trek that doesn't usually end up happening it's usually i feel like frankly even before we get deeper into this we should pause and note that like this is the problem with using space as a (laughs) metaphor for other cultures because sidebar here as much as i and both of us and 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 many of us love sci-fi the history of sci-fi is full of colonialism and racism yep and the experience that really cemented that for me was the class that i took in college where we read uh edgar rice burroughs's of mars books which are horrible they're really Uh, bad don't put your eyes on them yeah, I, I, not recommended by me. A very, very, very explicit man goes to space as a metaphor for colonizing the world around him thing. Literally, the, the main character goes from like fighting Native Americans to being teleported to Mars where he fights the Native people there. <laughs> um, Ouch. Yuck. And it's it's not even like it's a direct parallels drawn between these two things. And unfortunately, that is the legacy that a lot of this kind of exploratory sci-fi is founded on sci-fi has unfortunately a long legacy of being built on these sort of metaphors for colonialist behavior and, and colonial exploration and colonization that they dress it up as if that's not what it is because it's space mm-hmm. these people aren't human these we're going people. to different planets we're not going to just you know different countries on earth and doing this but so much of that legacy is is built on those things and i think that's something that we have to take a really hard look at why those stories are satisfying to an american audience and a, you know a british audience like all of these audiences that have like deep colonial legacies and fantasies a lot of times sci-fi winds up just being an elaborate colonial fantasy of like what if i could talk about how i'm really into this thing but have it not be overtly obviously racist Listen, we ran out of people to colonize, so we had to go to space to like yeah, talk and about. Yeah, we want to pretend that we don't do that anymore, just to people who aren't human, and that's I think where it gets where the the metaphor becomes very very problematic. You know, it, it's kind of the same problem you get anytime you make a marginalized person or anything into a metaphor that is monstrous or whatever. It's like you've taken something that is literally not true that other people who are not like you and live in other countries aren't human, but that comes from a belief of othering an othering belief and then you make it literally true and it's it's a danger zone danger yeah it's bad there are attempts within science fiction and specifically star trek to combat that or argue that or or make it a a a gray area but i'm I'm just gonna say it like starfleet is basically a paramilitary organization they're not just scientists and explorers that is what they are saying they are doing but they all have phasers and they're all they all think they know better Yeah, well, and I mean, like, European colonialists refer to themselves as scientists and explorers, too. Yeah, they're just like, I'm going on an adventure. Like, it's not... Mentioning that like very American and Western concept, it has a secular core. And like I said, it's militarized, despite the fact that its goals are ostensibly peace, exploration, and it has an emphasis on eradicating hunger and suffering and terror throughout the galaxies. And I think what's important here is that Roddenberry pitched Star Trek as Wagon Train to the stars and Wagon Train was a popular like Western adventure show. It's not hard to see that this is Roddenberry's dream for what America could be. It's an active force of power. And there are very admirable parts of it to me personally. Like I said, like the pushes for diversity, the fact that they are trying to eliminate money and hunger and suffering, but it's deeply flawed and it's formed in a very particular calcified 
Wilsonian, as in President Woodrow Wilson outlook during the height of the Cold War <laughs> mm-hmm. and coming up on some shit happening in Vietnam. So you can't not know that when talking about at least original Star Trek. Like I said, like this show isn't entirely about me shitting on the Prime Directive and how it's fucked up and they only used it when they needed it by any metric <laughs> like like oh we we won't interfere with these societies that are less developed than us it's like or lesser than us or whatever it's like well by whose metric is your metric space flight like what's your metric here it's like again you've taken something that is a metaphor you, you've taken a metaphor and made it very real, real. like well we literally can fly in spaceships <laughs> unlike these people Unlike these people who are still living in the dirt and squabbling over money and petty human things, or in this case, non-human. So Roddenberry wanted to push his idea, his very Western American 1960s cis straight white dude idea of humanism. Um, But he also is giving kudos to American exceptionalism, individualism, and power. Like, it's not... I've also heard Star Trek accused as being socialist, which is very funny to me, because the absence of capitalism does not mean socialism. Like, it's not a (laughs) (laughs) one-to-one. There are still very deeply ingrained levels of capitalism in Star Trek, because the people who made it were living in capitalism, so they were only critiquing it from the inside. Um, And I have a quote here from one of my favorite essays that I read in the the broad research I did. Um, This quote is from... uh, Alex Burstyn Chorowitz, who says, instead, capitalism is overcome through technocracy and continual growth and expansion of liberal democracy. Many worlds seek entrance into the Federation as a sign of technological and political advancement. If the Star Trek universe is a socialist utopia, it is more akin with a technocratic Fabianism, the belief of gradual socialism without revolution, mixed with modern liberalism. Federationism is, at best, liberal or libertarian socialist in outlooks. It is not an that easy one That was a lot of words. It was a lot. It was a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> you, you even lost me in there. I know. I was reading it. And I was like, what word was I on? Did I fuck up a technocracy? Yes, I did. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna kind of wrap this up. We have nice things to we talk about. We have nice about. things to talk about. And I'm really anxious to talk about my children, Kirk and Picard. Even though Star Trek likes to say and really earnestly does believe that its captains and its ships are not colonists or conquerors and that the people on the Enterprise are inherently like nice people who do care about others and face tough decisions and they do want to respect alien civilizations and protect alien lives. Look at when it was made, look at how it was made. You can only be as subjective and as revolutionary as in, in your own lens. You can't not be influenced by the society that you live in. Oh, so Picard and TNG has a couple of quotes um, from The Neutral Zone, an episode in season one, where Picard says to somebody like, material needs no longer exist. And then somebody asks, what's the challenge? And my beautiful baby boy. <laughs> Jean-Luc Picard says the challenge Mr. Offenhouse is to improve yourself to enrich yourself enjoy it and that's such a funny way of looking at it the challenge is to just to just what self-improve yeah it's really precious and I enjoy that sentiment it's just like oh boy well it's and it's also an interesting framing because it's not a world free of conflict no and it's not a world free of suffering either like as much as i think it's cool that we have a utopia that says like you know everyone is fed mm-hmm. everyone has their needs met i feel like the next step to that isn't just like well okay sweet we're good yeah we're good we're so good that we're gonna travel the galaxies like finding catalog cataloging and encountering quote-unquote inferior planets and species just to like do it because <laughs> we've we figured all our shit out ever <laughs> we're good <laughs> Now that we've talked enough about poor Star Trek's broken conception. (laughs) I love you, Star Trek. I'm sorry to be shitting on you like this. One of the things that I think is important to talk about, we need to talk about Kirk and Picard as being very much shaped by the times that they were created and aired. First, we're going to talk about Kirk, James, T, Kirk, my son. If you haven't listened to The Hopeless Romantic, there's an episode which I will probably link in the show notes where I talk about how I loved William Shatner so much with all of my heart and he blocked me on Twitter. And also he's kind of <laughs> swallowed a lot of red pills um, yeah. in the time since. So still know that my heart is broken. <laughs> this wound will never heal. It will never fucking heal. This will follow me to my grave. I didn't grow up with TOS, so my awareness of Kirk until I actually sat down and started watching the show was very influenced by the cultural perception of Kirk, which is wrong and bad. 
<laughs> I'm going to lay it out there. I'm going to lay it the fuck out there. It's wrong and it's bad and people should be ashamed of themselves for being reductive and easily fooled. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of shame in this episode so far. Hey, everyone, I just want you to know that contrary to what Amanda says, if you're ready to make a change in your life, if you're ready <laughs> to... Uh, to come over to the side of really knowing the right things the about Captain Kirk, my arms are open to you. <laughs> with arms I will wide not, open. <laughs> I will not meet you with shame. I will meet you with a warm embrace. That's what Kirk would do. So you're That's a better what Kirk would do. man than I. And then Amanda will knife you. <laughs> James Kirk is the youngest captain uh, don't quote me on this. This might be one thing I didn't research very well. Is the youngest Starfleet captain in history. He he worked hard. He got himself to captainship. He is a bold adventurer. He is very much a hero. Roddenberry was looking around at anti-heroes and villains and said, "I think people are tired of this, and I, they want a hero. They want a hero in the in the vein of Horatio fucking Hornblower. So that's what I'm going to give him. I'm going to give him Horatio Hornblower, but on a ship. Isn't Horatio Hornblower also on a ship? Yes, he is, but like a spaceship versus yeah, okay, a. I got you. Uh, I almost said a scooty ship that's not, not that's nothing that's nothing it's a watership ocean ship <laughs> traditionally you look at a tall ship out there and the one's like boy it's really scooting that's scooting along scooting look at that proud scoot boat out there <laughs> it's a scooter not a schooner okay enough ship puns good yeah it, it wasn't good, good one Take it back. I hadn't realized this until I did some research, so this is not my own observation that I'm making. When Star Trek was on air, like, think of Kennedy. Think of Kennedy's Camelot administration. Think of the fact that we were in a space race with Russia and we were booming in terms of technological changes and advancements and we were desperate to secure ourselves as a world superpower and then look at someone like james t kirk the I, youngest wait, captain what is camelot it's like the it's the like, camelot we do, like, myth we're talking about like we liked all of the people there and they were all like heroic it, it's basically the myth of his days in office being a glittering fairy tale as this people article oh. says and also apparently camelot was kennedy's favorite musical Oh, no. And then Jackie said, um, don't let it be forgot that for one brief shining moment, there was Camelot. So she was saying like, uh. of, I almost said Kirk, of Kennedy's presidency, of his time in, in power, like it was a glittering fairy tale and there was, like Camelot existed again. Got like it. Like the, the, the nobility and the strength and the whatever of Camelot and the honor was again in the Kennedy administration, I guess. If that's the president that we're looking at and that's the legacy we're looking at, in a time when we're desperate to prove our exceptionalism and our modernism, like it makes a lot of sense that Kirk is that template. And uh, the fact that they're looking at space as a frontier, uh, again, wagon train to the stars. They're really telling like very traditional three act structures, like adventure stories, but with like aliens and planets. There's yeah. not, there's very little in, in the original series that isn't super rote television in terms of an adventure happens on the planet well i remember you telling me we we were watching some episodes to to get ready and i remember you pointing out that the music in the show he, he didn't want like space music yeah, he wanted adventure he wanted music adventure music yeah and if you go back and please go back and listen to the star trek <laughs> themes they're a delight they're beautiful there's nothing sci-fi about them they're very much like we're gonna go for a romp yeah in there, there could be horses there could be wagons there could be bows and arrows and shit like it's it doesn't sound like it is matched to space i think the only reason we accept it as being so is because it's part of the popular consciousness now it's part of the zeitgeist now that i've talked about the construction of kirk i want to talk about how people frequently get my man wrong <laughs> <laughs> he is there, so there is one article in particular that i have linked in the show notes that's called um called freshly remembered kirk drift and it's basically about how it's my favorite beverage <laughs> it's refreshing pop the top it's refreshing carbonated sizzle mm. i'm gonna go over a couple of these notes but i'm not I'm gonna... sorry that's the liquid that you know like comes out of him instead of sweat <laughs> He's a lemon-lime refresher. Oh, that explains so much about my man. So, <laughs> so a couple of the notes that I want to address in terms of Kirk, especially as they pertain to his juxtaposition with Picard, who is seen as much smarter. I want to talk about the fact that he's portrayed as, like, the punchy ladies' man who sexes up green aliens. You know, he was just, like, a brash asshole. And some of this is also... It's not improved by Shatner being kind of a dick, and it's not improved by... 
the reboot movies. Yeah. Who I was going to say apparently they, never actually watched Star. I mean, I know they, that they leaned didn't. into that quite a bit. And I mean, I, I get that they were also trying to do an interesting thing where they're like, what if Kirk hadn't had the upbringing he had in the series? Well, he'd be a dick. He'd be a misogynist dick. So <laughs> a couple of the things that I want to refute, which the article that I link uh, does much better and in a lot more words than me one he wasn't all about silly action and fighting gorns and fucking ladies he was canonically a bookworm he was a huge strategist who was complimented on his strategy by people like you know spock and romulans whom he did battle with and he fell in love so easy yeah <laughs> he's not he's not just like mm, sexy ladies he's just like she seems so cool she has good ideas we think alike i love her i met her three days ago and we're in love yeah i would give up anything i would literally i'm a fool for love <laughs> i'll quote poetry at her or something so we watched the city on the edge of forever which is the very famous episode written by harlan ellis about um <laughs> mccoy through very bad reasoning goes to a planet where there's like a <laughs> how would you explain that thing uh sort of like a big plastic <laughs> frame um that glows and says i'm a computer I'm, um, I'm... i can send you to the past <laughs> Look at your primitive past. Yeah, it has like a big booming voice and there's like smoke and it has like a TV screen. And it's McCoy, while drugged, uh, goes and very paranoid, goes into it and he ends up in 1930s Depression era New York. And destroys the past. He basically destroys the past. Find he out. makes it so that like the Nazis take over the world. <laughs> by saving a woman from getting hit by a car or a wagon. I don't remember where. Yeah, very like a butterfly effect. Yes. Like problems. in 1930, she, like Edith Keeler gets hit by something and then Nazis don't win but if she lives nazis win <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah yeah like they let a woman have that much power to talk with the president all right so K kirk and spock go in and through their bumbling <laughs> bad ideas manage to essentially ascertain what is happening and why and meanwhile kirk is falling in love with edith keeler because she has like a lot of opinions about what humankind will be doing in the next several decades and she's like she's a nice lady and she pretty so he immediately is just like oh my god i love her and then he realizes that edith keeler must die and if he's dun, dun, dun. if he's if he's is party to saving her the nazis win and so that's that episode so edith keeler is not really an outlier a lot of jim kirk's romances are very like strongly felt so i found a resource that said someone tallied his dalliances and his romances and came up with quote only seven possible instances and only four of those can we count as confirmed across 79 episodes plus in those episodes five people were mentioned that would have been dalliances in his past that doesn't really track with the image of him just kissing every alien babe yeah and it's like it's clearly a character trait of his he has a weakness for a pretty face and He's like flirty. falls in love easily but there's a kind of macho dude perception of that that's like oh he just goes around grabbing every babe it's really not that and i think it says a lot that that is sort of what it became in the public yep. image i don't care if people think that kirk fucked a lot because fucking a lot is not a character plus or minus like it's a, a thing it's a neutral value the only thing that bothers me is somehow a tribute to his like brash masculinity that he fucks a lot like ooh but also a lot of the like kisses or close encounters that he has are under duress or coerced he has to do it for a mission or somebody's preying on him and even those it's disingenuous to pretend like he was enjoying that every single time yeah you know, not to make the obvious comparison, but like Han Solo is portrayed as like this smooth talking, like I love Han. He's snarky and beautiful, but he cannot be around Leia without saying dumb shit. He doesn't have quips for everything. I don't understand why we have just accepted that Han Solo was somehow like the baddest dude. <laughs> yeah, no. like man quips once and it's like, <laughs> what a cool guy. He must be like that all the time. Man frequently steps in shit and has to be rescued. <laughs> <laughs> We have this skewed view of Kirk fucking everything that moved and somehow that being a testament to his masculinity. And I don't think that's accurate or says what it what people seem to think it does. One of the complaints about Kirk 
and this is valid on several levels, but I feel like it should be pointed out that some of the instances when Kirk violated the Prime Directive, which is the directive where you're not supposed to interfere with still developing civilizations, it was usually to save a race of people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he didn't do it on a whim because he didn't feel like it. Kirk, despite being a little bit of a maverick, wasn't all about breaking rules. Like he was a very thoughtful, tactical person. And he uses, whenever he can, he uses bluffs and manipulation to end conflicts, although he will fight. Like Kirk will use his weird jujitsu throwing himself on people moves. <laughs> he will do it. I should also mention, and this is this is a little bit of a gimme, but as I said, like the prime directive was not really nailed down in that era of Star Trek, and it was more of a world building flaw than a Kirk flaw. Like they only used it when they needed it and it was inconsistent. Yeah. And it, there hasn't been any one document that's been released to my knowledge with the Prime Directive spelled out with all of its, you know, sub clauses and shit. Like we've gotten bits of it here and there through the well, years. Well, it's a way more convenient storytelling device if they don't have to say exactly what it is. Exactly. These examples that I'm using to, to sort of explain, like Kirk wasn't just a sassy ladies man. He was a smart, thoughtful, kind dude. I'm not going to pretend that they were not really into maximizing the the masculinity of Kirk. Like he's frequently gleaming and like with his shirt ripped a lot. He does yeah. get into hand-to-hand combat. Shatner was embodying a sort of masculine ideal at the time, but erasing the sight of him that was a brilliant tactician and a kind, thoughtful man who cared so much about his crew is just shitty and uninspired. We can do better than this. Yeah, it's just one of those things that doesn't stand up to even a cursory viewing of the show. I haven't watched a whole ton of Star Trek, but I've watched, you know, probably 15 or 20 episodes of TOS. Yeah, that character is like the the image of him that's burned into my mind is of him like being thoughtful in his captain chair as he approaches a problem he he doesn't just punch and he relies <laughs> on his crew and i think i i scrolled down through my notes and saw this because of course i had more um i think one of the reasons why the, the cultural conception of kirk is being brash and less smart than he actually is might be because of his relationship with spock and the juxtaposition juxtaposition between the two <laughs> the juxtaposition you know, making up <laughs> words. So you have Spock as a logic-focused, brilliant Vulcan science officer who's supposed to be the avatar of brains. But if you are like, oh, well, Kirk was just the human heart. I imagine just like Avatar the Last Airbender, <laughs> but he's like brain bender. <laughs> oh, God. I'm glad you didn't say Avatar the James Cameron movie. No, not that one. <laughs> Listen, they touch braids and it's like the Vulcan mind meld. Mm. I think that it misses the point of why part of why Spock is on track. And it's because he's learning from Kirk, who is a human. And he sees Kirk as brilliant. He sees him as a very competent, tactical human person. And he's learning from him. And he respects Kirk's intellect. And like he plays chess with him. And so I feel like Kirk humanizes Spock. And that's the story more than it is than Spock imbues Kirk with logic. Although Kirk will certainly turn to Spock and be like, what do you think? Give me your Vulcan logic here, Mr. Spock. I feel like, okay, I'm going to put a pin in, put in my baby Kirk. He's going to go sit down for a minute. Don't put a pin in your baby. I'm going to put a pin in my baby. In my boy. And we're going to talk about my other baby, Jean-Luc Picard, who I grew up on. I had to go back and learn about Kirk. I know so much about my beautiful Jean-Luc, the nerd that he is. So again, with that Kirk v. Picard thing, it's always like, well, Picard was a genius. He was an orator and he was a Shakespeare nerd and he he did not want to go into battle ever. He was the utmost diplomat. He's a scholar and a gentleman and he's distinguished. And actually the show Bible written by Roddenberry describes pretty much first line, Picard is distinguished. If we're going to compare someone like Billy Shatner... <laughs> who's just golden and running around punching things sometimes to someone like sir patrick stewart who is a noted shakespearean actor not that bill hasn't done shakespeare he has and the fact that one of them's british and one of them's canadian or presumed to be american honestly like you see just optics alone one of them's going to be painted as the nerd and one of them's going to be painted as the jock (laughs) james t kirk jock jock t kirk I'm going to absolutely concede that he is more cerebral than Kirk. He is more of a diplomat than Kirk. He does really not enjoy (laughs) hand-to-hand grappling like Kirk does. He also has a completely different ship situation than Kirk did. Kirk was out there charting uncharted space, and Picard is out there with a much bigger complement with families on his ship, which he's uncomfortable with, to be fair. He has families on his ship that he has to worry about. 
Um, mm-hmm. And they've charted more space. So a lot of this is not going to new places that they haven't explored. Do they have families on board because they're on like a terraforming mission of any sort? Or is it just like... No, they just have families on board. People just have their families in space because yeah. they spend a lot of time in space. Yeah, they spend a lot of time because they have, I think, I think they still have five-year missions. So you have someone, like the most obvious example is the fact that Beverly Crusher, the ship's CMO, has a teen son named Wesley who's just there <laughs> for most of the show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not shitting on Wesley. I actually kind of like Wesley. I know that's a character flaw. But, <laughs> <laughs> but they have literal children running through the halls of the Enterprise and Picard uneasy because he's like i have to put us in very hinky situations and get us all home safe and i can't always do that and there's children they didn't sign up for this and also for the record uh according to patrick stewart roddenberry told stewart that picard was also based on horatio hornblower (laughs) 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 which is so fucking funny to me i'm like an older more mature you have more references huh you just had the one (laughs) you just had horatio that was it there's only been one hero ever and it was horatio (laughs) Everyone else is a carbon copy of Horatio Hornblower, the end of episode. Is this episode really just about Horatio Hornblower? (gasps) Maybe it is. (laughs) Fuck Kirk versus Picard. (laughs) Horatio (laughs) Hornblower versus everybody. That may be the title. Horatio Hornblower versus the world. (laughs) (laughs) So a little bit more background on Picard. Um, He was born in France, although... (laughs) I was refreshing i remembered oh yeah he doesn't really speak french because at whatever time like french is a dead language essentially like it's just fallen out of use what yeah he speaks he has an english accent and he speaks english and doesn't speak french as yeah okay that's weird that's rude i think it was it seems rude it's very rude but it's also a very funny way to um explain why jean-luc picard Sounds like Patrick Stewart. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, Another important element of Picard's character is, I guess, his relationship with Riker, um, his second in command. They have a very mentor-mentee relationship and kind of a father-son vibe. He loves archaeology. He was going to be an archaeologist, but instead he became a captain. He loves to debate. And like I said, he will always try diplomacy before military action. I mean... I mean, hopefully. Hopefully. Hopefully, normally people would. Listen. No, most people wouldn't. Picard, I don't think, has the reductive or unnuanced view of his character in society that I think Kirk does. I think everybody kind of knows, just based off of Sir Patrick Stewart's carriage, Picard's the smart diplomatic one. And Kirk is, I guess, not. (laughs) He's smart, and he's diplomatic, and he's he's nice. (laughs) Watch Star Trek and tell me that James T. Kirk doesn't love his crew because he does. He's a nice man. Now I'm going to talk about the fact that if you ignore the cultural image of Kirk, he and Picard are way more similar than I think people want to give them credit for being. They're both big old nerds. Big old nerds. They'd have so much to talk about. At this point in history, like Picard would hero worship Kirk because he is a figure out of legend. It's been like 90 years between TOS and TNG, if my math isn't wrong. If you came up to Picard and said like, hey, Picard, you're my favorite Starship captain of all time, he'd be like, oh, I'm flattered, thank you. And then he'd be like, yeah, fuck everyone who likes James T. Kirk. He's just like a jock and like a an idiot. He'd be like, <laughs> <laughs> not pistols at dawn. <laughs> <laughs> Diplomatic pistols at dawn. <laughs> I'm gonna fucking, I'm gonna build a podium. <laughs> I'm gonna sell tickets for a lecture. I'm gonna fuck you into I regret. I will school your ass <laughs> into the ground. <laughs> Stay tuned for my lecture on whipping your ass metaphorically. <laughs> um, oh, also, I found this while scrolling, but literally Gary Mitchell, Kirk's like best friend in Starfleet, uh, referred to him while at the Academy as a stack of books with legs. <laughs> He's a nerd, and I will hear nothing else against him. One of the things you talked about was like the different political eras that these two shows came from. Yes. Um, and I thought that was really interesting to talk about, like why Picard is a such a different character, but also some of that is just the context. The context of the world. Like, if you look at the difference between, like, 1966 and 1987, oh, it's, it's a lot different. It's so much different. Like I mentioned, Kirk was shaped very much by the Cold War, the Kennedy era, um, the the position that America held as a superpower, but it wasn't set in stone yet. Um, it's conflicts with Russia. He's molded by that, whereas during the run of TNG, we actually exited the Cold War. It was, I don't want to say resolved, but it was officially 
declared over during the run of TNG. And we had, in the meantime, opened ourselves up to a lot more international um, conflicts and really sticky situations. Not to say that there wasn't a whole lot going on in the 60s. There was. The nature of what we considered the enemy had changed so much. Russia had, the Soviet bloc had been, quote unquote, liberalized more. Their Berlin Wall came down. Like, things had changed so much. Yet we still had brewing conflicts in the Middle East. We had conflicts in Israel. We had things that we had our nose in that we shouldn't have you also had like between those two things you had the vietnam war which was kind of a turning point of like you know we had the good wars quote unquote and now we have this one that's on television that's real nasty and bad so we had gone from a a sort of american exceptionalism to like a very sober consideration of what it meant for america to be meddling in foreign diplomacy And so Picard reflects that. The conception of the ship's mission is even different. They are not finding, they are not strictly speaking, finding new places that no one has ever, no human has ever gone before. No member of the Federation has gone before. They are exploring and surveying places that they already know exist. And they are being very careful because they have, um, like the new enemy in um, TNG wasn't just the Klingons. The Klingons world had at that time uh, had changed a lot between TOS and TNG. And in fact, you can see that really easily in the fact that one, they were way more complex in TNG and Worf is the security officer <laughs> on the Enterprise. Worf is a Klingon for all those in yes. the audience who don't know who Worf He's is. He's a beautiful Klingon. And he is also my son. <laughs> Everyone on the show is my son or child. As probably everybody knows, like they added Chekhov to the bridge of TOS, I guess, <laughs> to try and um, extend a weird meta olive branch towards Russia. <laughs> there's a lot of reasons for why that happened but some of it was because they wanted like a cute boy that they could get fan mail about like just from a marketing perspective that's fair yeah that's fair i mean i'm not gonna be mad about that don't we all i I mean i like chekhov as a character but i need to talk to walter about his choice of accent and also hair what can i do it was the 60s or was it it was future space definitely not the 60s in any way shape or form i don't know how you could look at uhura's jade hoop earrings and cat eye and go that's the 1960s (laughs) in her mini skirt (laughs) say that's the 1960s the complexity that picard was facing or at least the appearance of complexity because i feel like yes the 1960s were extremely complex but we had gone through we had gone through changes in administration like i don't have the exact dates in front of me but i believe star trek TNG would have started running during the Reagan administration or possibly the first Bush administration. Sorry for my shitty math. And that is a world away from the hope and supposed progress of of the Kennedy uh, administration. So yeah, the reason why Picard is so different is because the 90s and the late 80s were very different from the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And the way that we told stories on television was different. We were starting to tell more serialized stories. We were starting to fall fall away from some of the cheesier, more canned elements of television production. We had more money in television in the 80s and 90s. It can't all be written off to like Kirk and Picard are very different people and Picard was just better because that's not true or particularly useful. One of the other major reasons why TNG is such a different show from TOS is because in the time between, this is according to various sources, in the time between TOS and TNG, Star Trek became a cult hit and a pop culture phenomenon. And in that time, Roddenberry was going to conventions and encountering people who were treating him like a god, like someone who had had brilliant thought and was essentially a philosophical leader. And he drank his own Kool-Aid a little bit, according to Mm. these sources. (laughs) He got a little bit he got a little bit hyped on his own juice <laughs> he got a little excited about his own genius his politics changed he became more aggressively humanist he became more secular in his thinking and he also became really attached to the idea of star trek selling a bill of goods about utopia and kindness and what humanity can be and so one of the edicts in tng's first two seasons and this was supported by the showrunners and executive producer at the time was that none of the conflict could be internal between the crew they all had to get along it they were too highly evolved and too nice and (laughs) too special to have like petty problems like being wrong or shitty or mean or anything so every Mm -hmm. conflict had to be external it had to be like wily aliens or you know q or something taking over the ship it couldn't be Riker made a bad choice or 
Yeah. Everybody had to be kind and on their best behavior <laughs> and just serene. The first two seasons of TNG are actually kind of widely seen as the worst because of this edict, and they did pull back on it some, but that edict really shaped a lot of how Star Trek was written after that point, and it was kind of missing. Kirk and Spock and McCoy were not always right, and they did not always get along, and they made mistakes. So the idea that, like, no, in the future, everyone will be right all the time didn't work. Uh, and hilariously, Ronald D. Moore who was a writer on, I believe, Voyager primarily. He may have written for TNG. Uh, it's a little... I'm unsure. But he was so fed up with writing these, like, perfect humans in space. <laughs> he was just <laughs> done. He was like, fucking end it now. That he went off and uh, wrote and produced the Battlestar Galactica revival. <laughs> Which is the polar opposite. It's everyone being yeah. shitty in space. <laughs> it's nuance for days. I won't write a single character who doesn't make a mistake <laughs> once per minute. Adoma's being too cool this episode. I got to give him something shitty to do. Hold on. <laughs> I wrote Gaius Baltar <laughs> just to vent my frustrations about other characters <laughs> doing good or being good or having good thoughts or intentions. Gaius Baltar hasn't done a good goddamn thing in his whole shitty life. I love you, love Gaius. <laughs> <laughs> one day we will have a bsg episode but it will have to be a while out because austin is not done watching it so yeah i want to talk for a second about the the episode that we watched together yes um which was the uh, because i thought that was a really interesting um example of that it's an episode about um picard confronting paranoia and particularly like paranoia of people in power you know using the fear of spies or in this case someone with romulan ancestry yeah using that as an excuse to attack anyone that they feel slighted by or mm -hmm. you know any kind of hostility towards which is a much more nuanced political call out yeah. than I think you mostly see on TOS. And it also, it's a really interesting framing of the conflict there because I'm just going to go ahead and spoil this episode because it's one episode of Star Trek. <laughs> like you start out knowing that like there was some attempted sabotage on the ship. You know, there was some like information being smuggled. By a Klingon. And they believe that this other thing was sabotage. Then like halfway through the episode, they're like, it actually wasn't. And it has become the excuse for a witch hunt against just, like, other people who were vaguely connected to this or also have Romulan ancestry. Like, the plot twist of this is, like, actually, sometimes it's just people in power being shitty and paranoid and lashing out because they can. And there's no additional twist. There's no additional conspirator. It's like, nope. Actually, just, like, sometimes you take it a layer deeper and the layer deeper is... You're still shitty and paranoid. Picard had a lot of great quotes in that episode about what we're sacrificing because of fear. And mm -hmm. um, when Picard is basically on trial for um, not cowing to the demands of this female admiral who has come on board to effectively witch hunt this dude who has Romulan ancestry and lied about it because she hates the Romulans. Picard gives this speech. And it says, I am deeply concerned about what is happening here. It be began when we apprehended a spy, a man who has admitted his guilt and will answer for his crime, but the hunt didn't end there. Another man, Mr. Simon Tarsus, was brought to trial, and it was a trial no matter what others may choose to call it. A trial based on suspicion and innuendo. Nothing substantive offered against Mr. Tarsus, must let must much less proven. Mr. Tarsus' grandfather, I don't know if it's Tarsus or Tarsus, oops. I think it's Tarsus. Tarsus. Mr. Tarsus's grandfather is Romulan, and for that reason, his career now stands in ruins. Have we become so fearful? Have we become so cowardly that we must extinguish a man because he carries the blood of a current enemy? Admiral, let us not condemn Simon Tarsus or anyone else because of their bloodlines or investigate others for their innocent associations. I implore you, do not continue with this proceeding. End it now. And he has a lot of decent, good Picardy quotes throughout that episode. One of the interesting things is like his chief of security, Worf, who is a on is absolutely on board to like root this whole thing out like he's just like yeah we're gonna find the romulan conspiracy the spy this dude has acted in a way that proves that he's guilty and picard's just like that's not what we're supposed to do <laughs> you're literally effectively sentencing this kid because he's terrified that people found out about his heritage and this is how we're gonna act like what year is it basically like picard's just wandering around the entire episode like what fucking year is it are we on earth <laughs> like, yeah yeah, and it, that's such a different 
you know, political conflict than you run into in TOS. And it is clearly so built around this era of uh, American paranoia just ratcheting up, getting worse and worse, and the suspicion of, like, and fear-mongering of, like, the people in our midst who are our enemies. And so it was pushing back against a very different political climate. Yeah. TOS Kirk was post- the McCarthyism red scare basically some of Star Trek is is some of the original series is is in dialogue with that and is in response to that and some of the fact that they have like a diverse crew and um essentially progressive liberal ideals is also in conversation with that I think it's important that in the 80s and 90s like this came around again this idea of fear and mistrust of the other and to have someone like Jean-Luc Picard who is seen by his contemporaries and is seen by the audience at home as like a brilliant evolved person saying like these are our worst instincts don't listen to them we cannot condemn people for their innocent associations think bigger um i also before we leave this shindig i have a couple of quotes i want to read because i feel like they summarize some of the um the like push for open-mindedness that star trek did have at its core you know the greatest danger facing us is ourselves an irrational fear of the unknown there is no such thing as the unknown only things temporarily hidden temporarily not understood there's also a species that enslaves other beings is hardly superior mentally or otherwise. And my third quote is, well, here's one thing you can be sure of, mister. Leave any bigotry in your quarters. There's no room for it on the bridge. Some good quotes, yeah? Yeah. Some of my good quotes. Who would just say uh, said those things? Well, you already told me, so. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> play, play along. Play with me. Who's, who said them? <laughs> John F. Kennedy. <laughs> No, it Ronald was... Reagan. <laughs> Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. Sorry. <clears throat> no, um, it was dumb jock, uh, Jim Kirk. <laughs> there he is. There he is, not being dumb or a jerk or a jock or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> or a jock jerk. You want... My son is not a jerk jock. <laughs> He's a sensitive, I almost said powerful. I've been recording this episode too long. Sensitive, powerful boy. <laughs> he is, though. Austin, how are, how are you feeling at the end of this episode as we come to the end of this episode about, you know? Okay, this is ridiculous. <laughs> ridiculous lead in. It was supposed to be. Oh, okay. I wasn't being earnest. <laughs> okay. I was like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, apparently I need to use an even more ridiculous tone of voice yeah, for that. Yeah, yeah, no, amp it up <clears throat> okay. a little. Sue, Austin. How do you feel now that I've taken you to Kirk and Picard Church or Kaperch? Kaperch. Kaperch. I don't know. I think that might need another Kirk-ard. iteration. Kirkard. Kirk. Perk. Perk. <laughs> no. Jean-Luc. This is great. I'm thinking about my answer. You just keep making mouth sounds. <laughs> No, it would be like James and Jean-Luc, so Jean-James. <laughs> I'm feeling good about having a nuanced take on something that, you know, when we look at it now, certainly has its flaws, and we certainly did roll around <laughs> in them and sort of a lot. drag them straight to hell. But also, the you know, that came from, I think, a, a good intention uh, as much as it came from a flawed perspective and put some really valuable things on TV at a time when those things were not being portrayed. And yeah. I think when we look at the legacy of Trek, there's a lot of good in that. I, I feel like Trek embodies like a desire to be good, even if it doesn't always hit the mark of like what good is according to everyone and, and contemporary not just norms. its own yeah limited perspective and the desire to be heroic to be kind and generous i think it's important james t kirk and jean-luc picard are very specific to their sh- to their times and to their ships and i don't think that james t kirk would have worked quite as well in the 90s and i certainly don't think that picard <laughs> In the 60s. Probably wouldn't have flown. Yeah. No, wouldn't work. I go back to my complaining about people who are constantly seeking to win the the moral argument of which captain is better. Like Amanda's not done with you. They're not n- none of them. But <laughs> she's coming back. She still has the knife from earlier. I still have it. It's covered in your blood already. <laughs> I've got it right under your chin. I'm ready. <laughs> Fucking look me in the eye. <laughs> Say something about James T. Kirk. I swear to God. Say some fucking reductive 
uninspired, sloppy shit about that beautiful man. Jesus Christ. I managed to not talk about Kirk Spock this entire episode, and I'm very proud of myself. Because that's, a no- that's, a that's an entirely episode. different episode, and it's called Tahila, starring me, Amanda Jean, crying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll get to that. As somebody who wrote, like, not even for class, but in college wrote part of an academic paper about Kirk Spock fandom, listen, we'll get there. It's the OG of so much, and we'll get there, and I have a lot to say there. So thank you for uh, accompanying me on this um, bold mission, this this hour mission, not five years, an hour mission to talk about my two sons and how Roddenberry was a complex jackass (laughs) 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 and how not everything is as succinct. Just a real nuanced shit stain, (laughs) that man. It's just like if you held him up to the light, he had so many colors and textures. Some of them were real bad. (laughs) Some of them were lies. (laughs) Just a many faceted piece of trash. If you would like to continue the conversation about Star Trek or, you know, really anything that's on your mind, (laughs) you can find us on Twitter. I am at Austin Chanted. I am at Amanda H. Jean. And our show is at Red Red Pen Pen Pod. Pod. Uh, Also, we have a Patreon for the show, and if you like the show and you would like to kick us a little cash to help us keep it going, uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, It really helps us cover the cost of the program um, and and do fun new stuff. And if you pledge, you can get uh, a lot of bloopers and extra content. If you pledge at certain levels, you can also get us to talk about random stuff. (laughs) It's all fun. Uh, and if you have any interest in advertising the, on the show, you can contact us at redpenpod at gmail.com. Yes. So that, that's it. And uh, as always, if you love something, cut it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>